you need a Bible, raise your hand. And then Kathy, glad to give you one. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 4. Verse 32 is where we're going to just begin. Acts 4.32. Some things I'm going to mention to you, we will jump in and hang on. This, this Saturday, what day? Coming Saturday is what? Tonight. Thank you. Tonight. Very good. <laughs> so, uh, men, we're going to have a Bible study here. It's been meeting at our Bible campus for a while. We're going to meet here this month. It's called uh, Bibles and Biscuits, 8 o'clock Saturday morning. And Steve Metz needs to know how many men would like to be here. So he will be in the back of the cove or in the lobby. You can't miss him. Steve will be there. So guys, if you're interested in going, please let him know. And so they know how many people from here to plan for, how much food to order, that kind of thing. That's this coming Saturday at 8 o'clock here. It's uh, always a cool time. I've been there a couple of times in Martin It'll be fun to have you out here. So that's this, this Saturday. And the other thing I do want to mention to you, especially during the summer, it's really a, kind of a year-round thing right now. And I mentioned it in the last week or the week before. But really want you to consider to help us, particularly in the area of the nursery, if, if you can help. I'm not asking you to commit anything every single week, but just uh, periodically go in there and help with uh, in the nursery. So uh, when we are hurting, I know we enjoy the work of all time, and, but I know specifically here in the nursery, uh, we need some help. So, again, it's not here today, but if you're interested in helping me in that arena, you can let me know or let us know we pass it on the curve. Okay? Everybody awake? You know in the warm weather? <laughs> <laughs> I am MJY. I know I know you really want to know, so I'll tell you in spite of that. I hate cold weather. I hate it. So I take blood thinner because I'm old. And uh, when you've had your chest cracked open with open heart surgery, you tend to freeze it all the time. I don't like it, but anyway, I hate cold weather, but I love warm weather. And I don't complain about hot weather because I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but I hate cold weather. <laughs> 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 I just hate it. But it'd be funny, like next week I'm going to get a letter from God. You ever get that? <laughs> You get a letter from God saying, You are going to Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Serve me. <laughs> what my answer be if God said that? I would hope it would be that. <laughs> I appreciate the confidence in you, my brother. Probably my answer would be, Lord, if you look at me like that. I know you know all there is to know about me, brother. Can we talk about this? Can, can we negotiate? What about destiny? <laughs> I don't mind Alberto people like that. I'll deal with them. You know, every church has it. What's that Alberto? I can handle Alberto. Uh, I can't handle snow. I can't handle wind chill below zero. And uh, so 
be even clearer here, it's probably the worst possible place to start with something 16 and 17 year old. But I began to see maybe that uh, kind of how God had gifted me. I didn't know, I knew very little at all about scripture. I knew I loved Jesus and I was learning some things in the Bible. I just talked about it. But guys like Lawrence and guys like Bill Chapman, the fellow I just mentioned, and, and others encouraged me. Dr. Dr. Fred Rogan, who's still with us, is just a very, very encouraging me as a young man to that maybe God had his hand on me. I went to business world for a while, and ultimately God, 30, 40 years ago, called me to Central North Church to do full-time ministry. And I love looking back over the years and seeing uh, things that God has done, watching him still. When we came out here 12 years ago, I did very, very few people that are still part of what we started here 12 years ago. And I met so many new friends and people that, that mean so much to me in the marriage of our family that God brought when we came to Arlington. So still, it's, and I do believe we have a great church. I believe God has put his hand on it. He's blessed it. We'll continue to do so. What we're going to look at today, from an applicable point of view, I want us to look at the early church of Jerusalem. And notice why it was great. Not so much that it was a great church. I want you to notice, I'm going to play on the words. This is Great church. Look at chapter 4, verse 33. Let's start there. 433. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You'll notice as we walk through this, when it says great grace was upon them all, it's not talking about just the apostles. Yes, they were the leaders, and yes, they were the, the sent ones, the called ones, that Jesus said, You do this. But the church as a whole, in doing what they should do, there was great grace on all of them. And the apostles gave with great power they witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now drop down to chapter 5, verse 11. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. What we're going to look at today, contextually and historically, great grace. Great power and great fear made that church of Jerusalem a great church. The hand of God was on them, God was using them, and they had a reverential awe and fear of their God that they didn't want to cross him, that they wanted to honor him, that they wanted to love him, that they wanted to have a testimony to their world that their God was real. He was the, the great I am. He's the eternal judge. He's the God in our lives today. So here's the context. Context as we get started, chapter 4, verse 32. After the dramatic days of Pentecost, in the healing of the lame man that followed after that, you had Peter and John going before the Sanhedrin. You had the church growing exponentially. They'd grown from 120 to at least, this is probably a very conservative number, but they didn't talk about women and children very much, but at least. 5,000 people, and that's probably just men, but let's just say it's total. They grown from 120 to 5,000 in a very short period of time, and the Holy Spirit is working in their midst, and, and their testimony is incredible. So what has begun to happen, and we looked at it over the last few weeks, as a result, you're going to see it here. Interesting dynamic. Satan begins to persecute them. What you're going to see here is Satan's second ploy to defeat the witness of this church. He had an inside 
and he had an outside angle. So this great church that is going, growing mightily, both physically and spiritually, in the grace of God, the power of God, and giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, don't miss that, because that's the essential message of the church still to this day. Very simple. Paul summed it up in the church at Corinth. He said, this is the gospel. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And that is what we preach. That is what we share. That is what we want our world to understand and to see lived out in our lives as believers. That Jesus is the Christ, the one who came. He died for our sins. He was buried, but yet he rose again, conquering sin and death. So that we do not have to fear either the penalty of death, the penalty of sin, which is death. He gives us eternal life, both now and forever. That's the gospel. So they're giving great power to that. People are being saved right and left, including, as we saw last week, even some of the Sanhedrin who had been persecuting them were coming to faith. So Satan has had this double ploy. Their response in the midst of all this persecution, this is really what I want you to see. We focus on this great church. Their response as a church in the middle of this horrific persecution from the Sanhedrin, remember the ultimate Supreme Court for Jews. And they're all Jews by and large. Their persecution comes. And their response is to just be genuine, real, in loving each other, in sharing their faith. Not backing down, saying, you say he was a judge. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. We're going to share the gospel. You do what you have to do. And so the result is thousands are coming to that faith. They're genuine. What we're going to see is that they share with each other. It's a very diverse group. All ages, backgrounds, actually Jews from all over the world. Coming here, coming to Jerusalem, they came originally for Passover and Pentecost. They're being saved, all ages, all backgrounds, all sexes, female, all social status. That they're coming together. And here's the picture you're going to see: is that they're a family. They love each other. Without raising your hand, well, just raise your hand. How many have somebody, not necessarily in your nuclear family that's here in the building, but somebody in your family you really struggle to get along with? All right, how many have you as a person like You'll feel better. Go ahead and get it out. It is getting better. But what are they? And you may struggle in, you may want to grab them and shake them all and say, what is your problem? But they're still what? Your family. That's what the early church had. Despite their differences, despite their background, despite their social status, no matter what it was, they loved each other. They cared for one another. They shared with each other. And the result was the world saw that. And what did the world say? We want that. We want that. Whereas the church, and I'm talking about individual churches, the church, particularly for us today, particularly in the United States, we spend more time fighting with each other 
and stealing from one another than we do what? Loving each other. Being a genuine family, wanting to go out into what happens. We want our world, our community to see the Christ that's in us individually and corporately. We want them to be drawn to that. Because everybody, that's why I talked about it this week, in the context of not, not Christianity, but in the context of another religious dogma, is that the thing that drew them to that dogma, that drew them to that group, that made them the one to be part of it, was that they seemed to genuinely care. They were drawn to that. Jesus made it clear. They will know you are my disciples because you have what to one another? Love. Not faith. That you genuinely care more about the well-being of others than yourself. You're interested in them. You love them. You want the best for them. Lord, how can I minister to you? How can I serve you? The word minister means. That's what the early church had. It's what made them great. Is that they loved each other as a family. So, Satan's first strategy was to persecute them from the outside by using the Sanhedrin to politically put pressure on them to stop. Remember what we saw as we looked at the Sanhedrin. What did they tell Peter and John? You have to stop talking about what? Jesus. You got to stop talking about the resurrection. You got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They weren't interested in the lame man. We've gone over all that. Their point was, you got to stop this. And at the end of it, they decided, other than threatening them, we don't know what to do because the whole society around them were blocking them. So we can't kill them. We can't throw them in prison permanently. We'll lose our political power. So we'll just threaten them. I told you last week, we'll put them on double secret probation. See what happens. They said, do what you got to do. We're not stopping. So that was Satan's first strategy. And by the way, such an important principle for us as the church to understand. Paul told Timothy, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what's the rest of that verse? You will suffer persecution. Mark it down. Because Satan is not going to be happy. He's going to do whatever he can to stop that. So his first ploy was to say, Hebrew, pressure from the outside. That didn't work. So his second strategy is what we're going to see here. His second strategy was to silence the witness of the church from the inside. To use church people. He said, use church people, people who are on the inside. Let's get them sideways with each other. Let's get them to be fake. Let's get them to be hypocritical. And then that will affect their witness negatively, and it won't work. People won't be drawn to it like they are now. For example, not so much now, but over the years, when you would share with someone and they would tell you, I have no interest in going to church, one of the number one things you would hear is the church is full of hypocrites. <laughs> and you still do hear it. Church is full of hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? Very simple. The original language of the way it was used in that day, if you've ever seen Greek tragedies, very simply, a hypocrite was someone who would commit a plain act of 
And there one, it says there in verse 32, there's one heart and one soul. And the picture is this in Greek. At the deepest level as a human being, they were one. That means one heart. And then one soul meant emotionally they were attached to each other. Remember, you're talking about thousands. They did not know each other well. It wasn't like they'd been hanging out for years and then they were all family members. These were total strangers by and large each other. That small nucleus of 120 were probably close. But the thousands that are now here, they simply are one heart, one soul. It meant their existence and their experience in living with each other was that they were one. Here's what it's not, and here's what it is. Here's what it's not. It wasn't a bunch of men getting together and figuring out how we're going to organize this thing called the church. It wasn't a man-made organization. It didn't have an organizational chart that said, okay, and here's what we're going to do. No. What made them one was that they were an organism, a living organism. They were the body of Jesus Christ. Not a man-made organization, but a Holy Spirit-empowered organism that was vitally loving. That's why God chose, chose the metaphors that he did in the New Testament to describe the church. The primary metaphor that Paul used to describe the church is that it's a body, a living organism. And that, the, and that the parts of that living organism that you don't see or you don't think are most important are just as vital. You can't see your heart. You sure need it, don't you? You can't see your spleen. You need it. And he's saying, and you could be an eyeball. You could be an armpit. <laughs> I think that's what, what I am. You know what? We need each other. That's what made them one, sharing that unity. We are one. It's who they were, it's what they did. They were a community. That term is thrown around with a big word in church today. We want to be a community. You have community groups. And that's fine, I'm not anti. Saying this is real. They didn't organize it. They just loved each other. They shared with each other. They were a community the way God intended it to be. Quick example. When God was creating the universe, what's the last thing he made? I know it's a hard one, but it's invention. He created everything, and the last thing he made was what? Human beings. I love this picture. He created Adam, and he looked at him and said, What? That dude needs help. That's what the original Hebrew, that's what he said. That dude needs help. That dude needs help. And so he gave him the perfect person to do what? He was magnificent. To complete him. To finish him. Here's the quote that he did. Within the Trinity, it said, so beautiful. They're talking to each other. It said, let us, plural pronoun, create God in our image. And then after they made the, the man, they said, dude, uh, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. See that? And not just a husband-wife relationship, which was the nuclear, which was the basis of all life, what God intended to be. Not just that. Human beings were created for relationships. That's the reason that God described himself as our Father. We're called in the New Testament over 200 times the phrase is used, brother or sister. Why? So we would get it. We're a family. Not just people who decided we're going to do church together. 
you're going to worship together, or you buy into this creed together. Those things are fine, but you have to understand, you're a family. Your brothers, your sisters, in Christ, the whole body. You're on pit, need your eyeball. You liver, need your spleen. You need each other. Each of you has a function that will benefit the others. And together, it works beautifully and shared that unity. They were a community the way God intended it to be. Relationships, what's fascinating, God creates Adam and Eve, places them in paradise, and says it's not good for them to be alone. I love this. And then they sinned. Okay? They had been placed in paradise. They had each other. Beautiful paradise. And then they chose not to love God. Who is, by the way, God been good to them. Really good. They chose instead of loving God and trusting Him, which is the essence of all relationships, right? The love and the trust is the picture. They chose what? To believe Satan, to not believe God, and to focus on self, which is the opposite of any good relationship. They destroyed that one. But God divided atonement. He didn't stop loving them. They suffered a punishment called sin and death. But he didn't stop loving them, and he provided an atonement to deal with that death issue, that sin issue. And here's the other picture. God says it's not man to be right for man to be alone. They, uh, Jesus, or God, walked in the garden of Eden with them in the cool of the evening. They were Think about that relationship they had with God before sin. How beautiful it was. They chose self over that and to leave Satan over God. And then, so poignant, really emotional, boy, it shows you the love of God. After they sinned, the next time God shows up, what's the Bible say? They did what? They hid from him. It. They hid from him. Now we don't know how many years, we don't know how long they've been walking in the pool of the evening in the garden of Eden with God, and now because of sin, what's the last thing they want to see? Is God. See what sin does to that relationship? It's the same thing in our relationships. When we do when we do something to hurt another person, that's usually the last person we want to see. Because we know. God created us for relationship. We decided to throw it away, Adam and Eve did. We're grateful to them. But then Jesus, the last Adam and Eve, did what? He bought it back. He bought paradise back. So we can have it in him. That's why we use the term as Christians when we share our faith with someone. You can enter into a relationship with God. Not that God's out there somewhere. I know he exists. No, that's not what he wants. He knows he exists, by the way. He's the creator of the universe. He's the great I am. He is the eternal self-existent one. He's God. But what he wants for you and me is to be the Father. In a difference. Relationship. And then for us as a church, to be great. He wants us to be unified in that relationship. I'm going to read you the words of Jesus Christ. The last time he was on earth as he prayed for you. He prayed for those who would follow him in faith. Listen to his prayer. 
do not pray, talking to the Father, I do not pray for these alone, talking about the eleven, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You see now his prayer is that as we are unified, like the Trinity is unified, the world will see that God sent Jesus. By the way, that's why we're on the planet, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make learn to follow us of Christ. Continuing the prayer. The glory which you, Father, gave me, I have given them. They may be one, just as we are one. It says it again. I am them, Jesus, you and me, God, Father, and Jesus, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, says it again, and have loved them as you have loved me. That's the kind of unity God wanted for his church. It's the kind of unity he wants for his church today. To be one like the Trinity was. That kind of love so the world will see. That's what glory means. What God is really like. Who Jesus really is. And for, for us to have that kind of unity, which is what this early church at Jerusalem had, barriers have to fall. I can't be suspicious of you. I gotta be open with you. I gotta trust you. You gotta be open with me. You gotta trust me. I can't be uncertain about who you are. I gotta be willing to be involved in your life. Be part of who you are. I can't be afraid to enter in a relationship with you. I've just gotta love you. And sometimes we don't reciprocate, do we? By the way, the Bible says that God so loved the world. How many of that world responded positively to him while he was on the planet? Very small number, wasn't it? Very small number, but he did what? For God so loved the world that he gave. He died for him anyway. In Romans 5, 8, even while you were yet in your rebellion, you were sinned against God. Christ died for you. He died for us, even though we wanted nothing to do with him. And by and large, as a society, a worldwide society, is still to this day. We want nothing to do with him. But he died for us anyway. He loved us to the end, the Bible said. Because that's who he was. They shared their unity. Second, this one we're going to just get because we've already looked at it in earlier in Acts. They shared their wealth. Verse 34. Was there anyone among them who lacked? All who were possessing were lands, of lands, or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds. So, so laid them at the apostles' feet. That's the key to understanding this passage. Don't miss that little phrase. They laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as each one had need in time. Here's the picture. Because they were unified, they made decisions that honored God. One of their decisions were, was when someone had a need, they met, and it does not mean we talked about earlier, but I can go back to execute all that again. It's not communism. They weren't forced to sell their property and make a giant poop. No. When, when a need came up in their life on Randy and Mary Lockwood, someone would sell something to get the money needed to, to meet that need. They met each other's needs. The decision out of a unified body was we love each other, we're going to take care of each other, we're going to meet one another's needs. They all did it for each other. No one was forced to. We'll see as you walk through this. Here's what happened to them. Their attitude 
toward wealth and possessions change. It's not my land, it's whose land? God. It's not my wealth, it's whose wealth? God's. Here's what changed their attitude. God owns it all, and all of it is available for God to use as he sees fit. They all kept working. Does not mean, as I said, that they sold everything they had not working. What it means was they were different. Now, again, if you're in the outside world and you see that, what do you think? Wow. That's impressive. They just don't talk about loving each other. They do it. See the difference? They do it. So we talked about earlier, we said they were unified. They were unified emotionally and they were unified in their experience. They felt it and then they lived it. I don't just say to you, I love you. I show you through my actions. I love you. We take care of each other. They care about one another. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, the son of the faith, attitude, he wrote these words. 1 Timothy chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. Paul writes these words. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. An attitude. Like we go around the room. Everybody has a different level of income. That's just the way it is. It's a fact. That's not the issue. The issue was, what's your attitude toward that Let me say, some people in this world are rich. Command them, Paul writes. By the way, what does the word command mean? Make a suggestion, put it in a little note, tell them, you know, you don't mind. Is that what the word command means? <laughs> no. The word command means you tell them, thus saith the Lord God, do the following. And here's the command have the right attitude for your wealth. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Paul writes to this same young man, the love of money. Is the root of all kinds of evil, not what? Money itself. I can take a hundred dollar bill and lay it down here on the stage. Inherently, hundred dollar bill. As soon as you deal with a hundred dollar bill, the first person ever you had it would be there. What would you be doing? Somebody get killed on one of it. You know, there it's quick. In the back row, he'd be up here. If God his son would be up here quick. He probably needs it. Greeting cards. I had uh, our company developed this the cabbage patch, twin cabbage patch doll. First thing I had two girls. What did they want for Christmas? They had to have a cabbage patch doll. Well, I happen to know some people in the drug chain that I sold cards to. And I said, Look, man, our, my company developed a product called Care Bears, and they were real popular. And I said, I'll make sure you get a good shipment of Care Bears. Just set me aside. I don't have the names of them. God just need two Care Bears set aside. Whenever hit the shell, what happened to them? And so I went in there and I was doing my job, man. If you got close to Christmas, I'm telling every woman in there, if you got the last, they, they kill each other to get that last cabinet back, dog. And I 
And I saw some serious fights. Four down on Third Street. I thought, man, this is going to be ugly. Because I got to have that damage patched off. Here's what he's saying. He changed your attitude about money. You thank God that he's blessed you. And then you say, all right, God, how do you want me to bless others? That's not mean you sell everything. It doesn't mean that you, you move and do a tent. It means they love each other. In sharing their unity, they made a decision to share their wealth. And then verse 33, again, they shared their witness. The second evidence of their unity was their purpose. They gave witness, the apostles did, but they all, verse 33, had grace. The rest of the church, through their sharing, through their praying, through their being there, made it possible for the apostles to have this incredible witness for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their sharing with each other was a witness. Their relationship with each other was a witness. Their giving to each other was a witness. Their love for each other was a witness. So, here's the deal. Here's the picture. Everybody knew who they were. Everybody knew they were different. So when the apostles went out from that church and started talking about Jesus and his resurrection, people did what? They listened. Because they knew that they were genuine. They knew that they were real. I love now, like what we do with our health day. Nobody preaches. We're not allowed to by itself too much. But we love a lot of people. On average, 350 to 300 families a month that we clothe and provide food for. Everyone. Nobody preaches. They don't run a sermon on the video and all the time. I'm not going to do that. We don't do it. We just love those people. When they hear the name Christ Church, though, what do they think? Those people are really kind you don't think so? Next help day, you come back to the advertisement, you come back to the 16th of this month. You go there and you walk to the push basket and you go to the car and you pray, ask them to pray for Or you really want to be touched, go upstairs to the clothes and get out and walk with some of them as they're leaving and maybe walk to the elevator or even down in their car. I've had ladies in tears tell me I've never had clothes this much. Never. We don't ask for one thing in return. That's a great church. Not because we're cool. Because we just not believe on Donnie Curlin's heart and not put those in the machine. Man, it blesses people. So when they tell people about Christ Church, what's the one thing they know about Christ Church? They may not know anything else. What do they know? Those are loving, caring people. So if someone from Christ Church were to encounter them during the week, or some other time if they want to share Jesus with them, they might what? Be more inclined to listen. That's the picture. They had a great witness. But sharing that witness because they had the power and they were real. Now look at verse 33 again. The second one, then we're going to be done. His great grace was on him. Verse 33. His great grace was upon them all. They had the favor of God, that's what grace means. They also had favor with the people around them. They saw it because of their witness. It was on them all. I want you to notice verse 34. They shared encouragement, their spiritual gifts. 
No one among them lacked things were sold. Verse 35, he laid the apostles' feet and distributed as each one had need. They were willing to give. They were givers. By the way, this was the norm, not the exception. Quickly, I want you to notice the example of Barnabas, verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. We're going to get more into this example next time, but I want to just hit it today briefly. Example of Mark Barnabas. He takes his and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now drop down in chapter 5 for just a moment. What's the first word in chapter 5? Please don't make sure everybody sees it. What is it? But, and you know, and by the way, you know when this was written, there was no chapter first designation, right? So you read about Barnabas laying it at the apostles' feet, and the very next thing is, but. So in the context of Barnabas giving his gift, there's a contrast. What does the word but mean? The opposite. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold the possession. That's good so far, right? Absolutely. And he, Ananias, kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, so they had planned this. They brought a certain part and noticed the phrase. They did what? Laid it where? At the apostles' feet. That phrase, laid it at the apostles' feet, means I want to show my total devotion to God. Now go back to Barnabas for a moment. Notice his name. I love this. His name is Joseph. But he's known by what? What does Barnabas mean? Right here in the Bible, what does Barnabas mean? Son of encouragement. Nobody knew him as Joseph. They knew him by what he did. His spiritual gift. So let's say your spiritual gift is hospitality. You're now going to be called daughter of hospitality. That's literally what's going on here. Son of giving. Son of teaching. Son of mercy. Daughter of faith. That's what's going on here. He was such an encouragement to the church that he became known by his nickname, not his given name. Everybody knew that Barnabas was an encouraging person. And what we're going to see the next time I'm with you is that Barnabas was an encouragement to the church his whole life. And he was totally devoted. Ananias and Sapphira were playing a game. And they worked for a little bit both. And both were in the same church. God said, no, I expect my church to be a place of integrity. The value of it. Father, once again, we just are grateful that we have a God who is real. We have a church that's greater because of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for all of us, starting right here at the that we'd be totally devoted, not playing games, not hypocritical, not planning like Ananias is fire to look good. Just do it. That's who we are. Barnabas had the gift of encouragement. We encourage people. 
and totally devoted. It was obvious by the way he lived his life. I pray that's who we are. Whether our gifts of encouragement, mercy, faith, giving, teaching, service, whatever our individual gifts are. That we would just do it. Not because we're trying to impress anyone. Not because we're trying to gain anything. Just because that's who we are. We would be who we are in Christ. We thank you. You look at the example of the Church of Jerusalem. It's a great church. Great power. Great grace. But also great fear came upon them when they realized God was serious about this integrity. I pray we would have a tremendous effect on our lives. We are all of Him. Each one of us is a believer. Just take the time to be close today, even as we sing, to just thank our God for who He is in our lives and in our universe. Lord, for somebody here who's not a believer, that this would be their day where they would look at Jesus, die for them on the cross, and simply say, Thank you. Forgive me. Save me. I want to be part of that great day. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. We'd like to pray with you on behalf of you.